What is up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastic tonight. This is Rafael Garcia here with Shawan Humes for episode 227 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We have a lot to talk about today, as usual. But before we get into all of that, I want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this show or check us out. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to this content wherever you may find it and across your social media channels. And we're going to be talking about Jorge Masvidal versus Kobe Covington, some changes at UFC 273, uh, some boxing news with Saul Canelo, and looking forward to UFC ESPN 32. I think that's this weekend. But before we do, take the opportunity to subscribe us and check us out over at Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. You can hit us up on YouTube at MMA Ratings and on Instagram and uh, Twitter at MMA Ratings underscore net. You can also go over to MMARatings.com and .net to check out our flagship there. But I always got to say what's up to my boy, Sean Humes. We've been doing this together for a few years now, sir. We're heading into 2022. So what's up, man? How you been? Uh, you know me, okay. Just staying busy. Still got a couple of kids still staying or leaving back right away. So it's still kind of a full house. Outside of that, just been, it's been kind of slow as far as training because of the the weather's kind of died down. But in the next week or so, it should be picking back up. So other than that, man, just can't complain. Everybody's doing all right. The girls are still there. They're not back at school yet. Uh, school doesn't start back. School starts back at like the 25th or something. Uh, okay. 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 Yeah, I remember because we used to have something that we 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 will be in school for January too, but not every school does that. So you got a couple more weeks with the house full of women there, sir. But you're used to it by now. Yeah, it's just, I mean, just like old times. So just like old times, that's a great segue because we are going to be talking about first Jorge Masvidal, Kobe Covington, two men who used to be training partners. I think they were housemates at the same time, too. But like just like old times, now they're back to arguing and chirping at each other in social media, so much so that they are now booked as the main event for UFC 272. Now, let's take a step back and kind of unpack what has happened with UFC 272 and 273. Because last time we were here last week, we talked about the excitement around Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky and um, Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling, which were originally the main and co-main events for UFC 272. That has changed because the very next day, Max Holloway was pulled out with an injury and fights were shifted around. Uh, Volkanovsky is now fighting Chan Sung Jung, at UFC 273, and Al Sterling versus Peter Young was also moved to that card. So now they're also fighting on that, that same night. That is April 9th. What UFC did to compensate for, for that shift is they booked Masvidal versus Covington as a five-round non-title main event for UFC 272. So before we talk about these fights and kind of break them down on an individual level, Shawan, what do you think about the way they moved these uh, fights around? Do you think that that was a... Is this an equitable situation where UFC 272 feels like a pay-per-view, uh, or is it uh, a little bit less now that we have two guys coming off of a couple of losses? Well, Masvidal is coming off two losses. Covington is one and two in his last three. So what do you think that really means? Is is, is this less than now for UFC 272, or is this fight have, have enough buzz that people will get excited? I mean, people will be excited because of the storyline. It's not about I mean, they're both good fighters. Neither one of them is considered. I mean, right now, both of them would consider Kobe, I guess, is closer to the top half of the top 10, top five. Masvidal would probably be towards the bottom half of the top 10. So it's still a good matchup. Um, it's a matchup people wanted for years. 
it's you're gonna sell the point on the, you're gonna sell the fight on the history. You're gonna sell the fight on the individual fan bases of the character. Jorge Masvidal made a you know mid career change when he became Street Jesus and started knocking people out because before he was really a a, a fairly well known tough fighter who never really had any fan support behind him. But then in the last two or three years, he really kind of caught on and caught away with popularity. And it's the same thing with Colby Covington. He wasn't really any factor. And then he started with his whole MAGA gimmick and past three or five years, you know, he, he hasn't been a superstar, anything at that level, but he's been a bankable, reliable star to kind of get UFC views and attention. And half the reason either one of them got their fights with Usman was because not just that they were the best available fight, but they were the best available fight with the highest upside as far as, um, and as far as not just hardcore attention, because hardcores pay attention regardless, but to be, be able to draw on the casual fans. That's why both of them really got rematches that they didn't really deserve, if you really think about it. Kobe didn't do anything to really deserve his rematch. It'd be Tyron Woodley. What's that? And uh, Jorge Masvidal didn't do anything to deserve his rematch. I mean, it was a tough fight, but that fight wasn't really exciting or back and forth. It was still a fairly dominant win by Usman. He got it off the strength of his popularity with casuals and off the potential of him being able to draw in pay-per-view buys or fans in the seats. That's that's essentially why he got that fight. So um, while it's not the caliber of fight of the other two, it's got an appeal and a, a kind of a, a hook and a tagline through, through their shared history that the UFC can build on and use to generate interest. Yeah, I think that they're going to do a good job building this fight. Um, they're going to really kind of hype up all those different talking points. It's going to work from that standpoint. I don't think it's going to sell. It, honestly, this fight may sell more than the original card with Holloway, Boganowski, and Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. It may be very comparable numbers between the two. Uh, we'll kind of see what that looks like when we have. Well, shows. also, it's going to be a good fight. Stylistically, it's a good fight. So it's yeah. not, even though it's not an important fight, it's still a good fight. And it's two guys who have a long history and they've been in the news going back and forth. So the UFC has lots of ways to do, do different interviews or different shows building up this fight. Whereas Volkanovski and the Korean Zombie, I mean, Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan, I mean, those are important fights, but they're not necessarily fights that you can generate a lot of interest outside of the hardcores. Yeah, definitely. I think those two fights are more hardcore facing than this one. This one definitely is going to bring in the casual fans. I mean, hell, um, Jorge Masvidal was just on, well, maybe not just, but a couple months back, he was on AEW Dynamite uh, with Dan Lambert, and he'll probably be back on that show at some point in time. And not, not just that, but he's been he's been talking. What's the name of Jake Paul's been running his name through mm-hmm. the social. Media. So it's like he's got a lot of he's got a lot of heat on him right now. He knows how to play the game. He's got a lot of heat on him right now. That's one thing him and Colby Covington have done. A lot of fighters they get mad because they can't make the same money as them or as certain fighters. But all they want to do is let my, you know, I'm going to let my fighting do the talking for me. That's all well and good, but that's not what draws interest. Masvidal has stayed in the headlines, in the social media, in real combat sports headlines. Colby Covenant stays in social media and stays in the the, uh, MMA and combat sports headlines. They make it a point to keep themselves out there. So they always have a little bit more extra value than somebody who's just a good fighter. So it's like, it's a good fight, but it also has some history behind it and also has the guys who are going to do whatever it takes to sell the fight. Whereas other guys, well, I don't like to talk much. I'm not big into talking trash. I'm more of a respect guy. You can you can do all that, but you need someone who sells the fights so you can maximize your money since you're not going to do it. So these both both these guys will do the full re- the, do their job to the full extent. 
They're going to sell the fight before. They'll probably sell it after, and they'll give you a good fight in between. You mentioned Jake Paul just in passing because he's been talking a lot about um, Jorge Masvidal over the last few weeks. Do you think he comes? Do you, you think he shows up for the fight? Um, I wouldn't. Da- I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, it'd be. It, I mean, it's going to be a big fight. Kobe's going to be there. He's going to talk a lot of stuff. Masvidal's going to be there. He's going to talk a lot of stuff. It'd be the perfect situation for Jake Paul to insert himself in and be able to take shots at Dana and take shots at Jorge and take shots at Colby and just find a new way to ramp up that social media and that exposure that, that he wants and that ultimately ultimately the UFC fighters want. Everybody, the one thing Jake Paul does is he, he's providing exposure to a broader fan base than some of these guys have. So they'd be nuts not to take advantage of it. And I'm sure someone's going to ask him what he thinks about the fight and ask him if he's going to be there. And I'm sure he's going to respond that, you know, his opinions on it. And I'm almost absolutely sure he's going to be there. Now, let's talk about the style matchup, because you mentioned that this is an excellent style matchup. Let's kind of break that down, because I see a lot of people, maybe not a lot, but most of the individuals I've heard talk about this fight since it's been announced is they're automatically siding with Kobe, saying that his wrestling is going to be too much and that he's going to be able to stuff everything that Jorge is kind of going to offer on the feet and control where the fight goes on for five rounds. We know Kobe isn't much of a finisher per se, but he can definitely score points um, over rounds to win those rounds and get the, the decision. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that Jorge has the ability to stuff enough of the takedowns to do some damage to win three rounds, or can he keep himself on his feet long enough to get the finish? Um, well, the thing about it is not just that Kobe's not a good finisher. Kobe's not really even a good striker. He He's gotten better. He's a little bit more defensively sound. He's a little bit pickier with his shots. He sits down on a little bit more than he used to. But the fact of the matter is Kobe gets by on. There's a couple reasons why he's successful. One, he pressures you. And since he's always kind of on you, he forces you to throw strikes when you don't want to. Secondly, he throws a lot of volume. Whether he lands or not, he throws a lot of volume, and guys either focus on getting away from him or covering up instead of firing back. And three, two, or three, whatever, I'm losing track, his wrestling. His wrestling makes guys not want to fire back because they get into the exchanges early. They fire the counter, excuse me, and then he takes you down or he ties you up and, and grapples with you and saps your strength. So Kobe's not really a dangerous fighter. He's a guy who kind of out hustles you more than a guy who really beats you up or breaks you down or stops you. That that's really Colby's thing. Um, so in that regard, he, he can out hustle. He can out hustle Jorge Masvidal because Jorge Masvidal is a guy who fights in spots. Um, the only difference, the reason he went on this win streak is because instead of starting slow and and working his way in and picking spots to fight, he would start out a little bit faster and engage earlier and kind of have moments where he either knocks some guy out or put so much damage on him that when he picked his next spot to explode, he'd basically be able to finish the fight. He did it against Donald Cerrone. He did it against, um, who's that other guy? Ben Askren, a couple other guys he beat. He just he just was a faster starter. Instead of letting guys take control and working him way into the fight, he would start fast and take the fight to them ASAP. So I think Colby should be favored. Um, he throws a lot of volume. Uh, Jorge's known to fight in spots. Kobe um, stays busy. Jorge can be kind of lackadaisical 
he only really responds when he feels like he's getting beaten up or he's being threatened. When guys are throwing punches and not hitting him, he's more focused on sticking his tongue out, showing how slick he is, and talking shit to you than actually countering. It's kind of the reason he had issues with Usman in the first fight. And finally, uh, like I said, there's the wrestling. But Kobe's not much of a finisher, and Kobe pressing himself forward is going to give Masvidal opportunities to finish him. He's going to give Masvidal opportunities to land those counters because he his, he doesn't stay out on the outside and pick and pop and break you down. He comes forward and he puts pressure on you. And while the wrestling, I think, is a factor, the wrestling in and of itself, I don't think is the factor people think it is. Kobe's not really a big 170 type guy. I don't think he can bully Masvidal the same way uh, Usman did. But even Usman had pro- problems getting Masvidal down, and he had problems keeping him down. Not dramatic problems, but it wasn't like he just was able to ragdoll him the whole time. He could he didn't have complete control the entirety of the fight. Uh, Kobe's not as physical as Usman. He's not as strong as Usman. Um, I don't think he's as athletic as Usman. I don't think the wrestling in and of itself is such an advantage. It's a slight advantage. It's not a huge one. The advantage comes from, and it's, it's the Clay Guida thing. He's going to keep on going for those takedowns. He's going to keep going for those tie-ups. So he might get a bunch of takedowns. He probably won't maintain position on them, but he'll score points with them. Or he's going to have you tying up and defending him so much that that's when your arms get tired, your timing gets off, your footwork slows, and that's where his volume starts to take over the fight. But um, I'd favor Kobe. But like I said, it's, it's only dangerous because Kobe's not very good defensively, and a lot of his success depends on him pressuring you and throwing volume which means he's open to counters all the time. And anybody who's willing to throw is going to hit Kobe in the face. Anybody. The question is, if you don't knock him out, when you land your three or four, his 14 to 15 shots are going to drown out your three to four and overwhelm you and, and allow him to get decisions and allow him to take control of the fight. But um, while I think he can win the decision, I don't know that the fight will ever be really decided because Kobe's always vulnerable to counters and Masvidal is a, is a dynamic finisher. So based off of what you just said there, do you think this will be an exciting fight or will it look more like something we saw between Kobe and Tyron Woodley, where Kobe was in the dominant position for vast majority of the uh, fight? No, it won't look like that. Um, Woodley's problem is, one, he lost a step athletically, so he didn't have any confidence. He couldn't really let his shot go because once he realized he wasn't putting guys out, he didn't. he got even more defensive. And two, Woodley is always scared of burning himself out, so he's really picky with his shots. Masvidal isn't afraid of getting tired. Masvidal is just more of a sharper, sharper striker. He's still looking to finish too, but he's not scared of getting tired. He'll he'll counter with you if he feels threatened. So that's one thing. And secondly, Masvidal is actually, even though he's not dominant in one area, he's a good striker, not a great one. He's a good wrestler, not a great one. He's a good grappler, not a great one. But he's competent in every single level well enough where you can't really just dominate him. A lot of guys can't say they've dominated him on the feet, like really just taking him apart. Like Wonder Boy can say that, and maybe like two other people. And he's never really just been dominant. Even when he was grappling, Damian Maia took him down. Damian Maia didn't submit him. And even when Usman took him down, he was able to get back up. And when he fought guys at 55 and guys took him down, he was able to defend himself and get back up. So I think it's going to be exciting because there shouldn't be any real point where Kobe can clearly – dominate him i don't think jorge masvidal's i don't think his ego is going to allow him to just sit back and cover up and run and and run away i don't think colby covington's a physical enough specimen to just take him down and control him at least not the first two to three rounds and um 
I honestly think the wrestling, even though it's an advantage for Colby, it's not the advantage he thinks it is because Masvidal is a good defensive boxer. He's a good counter striker, and he's a decent enough grappler where he, he can exchange positions or get into better positions. So I think at least early, it's going to be back and forth. The rest will play more of a part because Kobe will be able to get takedowns or get him, up, get him up against the fence. I just don't think he'll be able to hold position for two or three rounds straight. Now, maybe later in the fight, he might be able to. But the first first round to three, I expect to be fireworks, and I expect to be going uh, pretty high octane and pretty physical exchanges. Good stuff. I agree with you there, sir. Um, who wins and why? Um, I guess I'm looking at it just on paper. I'd say Kobe wins. He just ends up out hustling him. Um, Masvidal's a good finisher. I don't know that he hits as hard as Usman. Um, and like I said, unless he's feeling threatened, like he's actually feeling under the threat of getting beaten up, he tends not to fight hard for three rounds, much less five. He'll get by by slipping and landing an occasional counter and slipping and letting you know that he's not getting hit or he's taken down. He'll move and parry and tie you up to let you know he's not getting hit. He doesn't work all rounds long. Kobe works pretty much every second of every round. And against better, against similar opposition, Kobe's generally put on better shows, mostly just out of work rate. It's not because Kobe's a good striker. He's not. Not because he's a great wrestler, because he's not. It's not because he's a great grabber. It's because he's not. He generally breaks guys down with his pace and physicality. So I ha- if I had to bet on it, I'd probably say Kobe wins it by some form of decision. I can't imagine him knocking him out. He generally doesn't hit that hard, and he never really sits down on his shots enough to really do that. I mean, it takes too much. It takes too much cardio to really sit down, throw hard power punches, and throw as much volume as Colby does. And um, so I think he'll. I think he'll win by decision. I don't think he'll ever really be able to overwhelm Masvidal because one, Masvidal will be able to scramble and create, get back to his feet or defend takedowns, and also Masvidal is willing to fire off counters. He's willing to punch with you. So anytime Colby gets too too brave and really puts a threat in Masvidal's face, and Masvidal is going to fire back, and Kobe's not slick enough defensively to get away from that. So that should give him enough space where he never can really take over the fight completely. Now, I want to ask this, because I'm interested in seeing what, what you're going to say. What do they win? Because how I'm looking at this fight is you have two guys who have lost to the champion twice each, and they're at the at they're in a division that is void of top contenders, but they have some guys who are bubbling up. I'm looking at this fight and I'm wondering, does this mean that Leon Edwards is getting a title shot or is a winner of this fight going to end up fighting Leon Edwards, Vincent, uh, Vicente Luque, or Hazmat Chimeyoff? Um, I think Chimeyoff I think it's going to – I don't think Edwards is going to fight either one of these. I think Edwards is closer to a title shot. If anything, they might have Edwards versus Chimeyoff for a potential title fight because nobody wants to fight Edwards, and nobody thinks Edwards' win over Diaz was enough to really justify a title fight. If he beats Chimeyoff, there you go, and if Chimeyoff beats him, well, there you go. I can't imagine – I can't imagine Edwards fighting one of these two. I, it just doesn't make any sense, to be quite honest. Um, I mean, I guess they could force him to, but to me it doesn't make much sense. I can see Chimeyov maybe fighting one of these two. Um, prefer, especially if it's Colby, because he needs a name. He's beating guys who are maybe good fighters, but they don't really have a name. They, they're not really drawing the attention he wants. So he'd need to win over either a dominant fighter, Edwards, or over a name person, uh, Covington. But um, once again, you know, I, I, 
I, I would think Jamea versus Edwards would be the best fight as far as or Jamea versus Edwards, um, Jamea versus Luke to get to a title fight. I, I just can't imagine Edwards agreeing to fight um, Covington or uh, Masvidal. But I mean, weirder things have happened. But I don't think beating either one of them does it what gets him a title fight. And to be honest, I don't know that he's a guarantee to beat either one of them. And if he loses, then they're right back into a title shot. And he's out of the mix for at least another two years. Yeah, those are some good thoughts there. So let's talk about the rest of that UFC 270. Actually, no. Let's talk about the UFC 273 card and some of the shifts that have gone on there. So Chen Sung Jung is stepping in for Max Holloway, who's out to fight Alexander Volkanovsky. He's coming off of a win over Dan Ige. What are your thoughts about this fight here? Is this the right decision? to make because I thought that they were going to wait until this weekend's fight and see what Jika Chikese did against um, Calvin Cater before they booked this one but they went with the Korean Zombie so is it are we prepared should we be prepared to see an, an, an upset or do we think Volk gets his second title defense Um, I would think that Volk gets his second title defense Um, the uh, Korean Zombie hasn't looked Hasn't looked spectacular since he's come back. He, you know, he lost to Ortega. Most of that was a result of him getting caught early and never really being able to work his way back into the fight. And beating Dan Ige, while Ige is a good fighter, Ige is is fairly limited. He's slightly above average athlete, you know, slightly above average striker, you know, average grappler, average um, wrestler. He's more of a guy who's just well-prepared, well-conditioned, and tough more so than a guy who's a dynamic finisher or a dynamic athlete or a dynamic skill-wise fighter. So um, given who they've beaten and, and the wear and tear on them, I'd have to favor um, Volkanovski. He should be the more physical guy. He should be the better condition guy. He should be the fresher guy. Um, and he's proven himself to be the more refined and all-round fighter in, in pretty much every realm, but especially the striking realm. And uh, the last time T, uh, the Korean Zombie faced a more of an athletic guy with some striking acumen, he, he wasn't able to recover from the power early. And, and I, I would think it's something similar to what will happen against, Volkanov- against um, Volkanovski. I, I, I didn't, the reason that I don't think they took the fight, it, this fight, into consideration is because Cater was handled pretty easily by Holloway. So unless – Unless the same thing happens again, it makes it kind of a weak argument. And if for some reason Calvin Cater wins, well, then you can't possibly put him in with Volkanovski. So it's better just to find two guys who are high in the rankings. And once again, the Korean Zombie does have somewhat of a fan base. So there's going to be people who are going to tune in to see that fight. And um, he's got a history of being a fairly elite world-class fighter, maybe coming up just short, but just being just under the best in his division. And as far as skill sets and resumes, he's probably the most proven guy at that weight who hasn't fought um, who hasn't fought Volkanovski. I don't think he's fought, in Hol- fought Holloway either. Who, Chase Lung Jung? Yeah. He has not fought Max Holloway. I don't think so. So out of, out of the division, there's very few people who haven't fought one or, two, one or two of these guys, and he's one of them. And he also happens to be uh, one of the few guys who's got a resume and not just face world-class opponents, but has beaten enough world-class opponents and has enough of a fan base where you could kind of salvage the fight and not just salvage the fight as far as importance, but salvage the fight as far as 
seeing something exciting because generally he's in he's in fairly competitive, fairly exciting fights. Yeah, he definitely. I mean, he's that's that's his whole thing. And it's interesting that as I was thinking about this fight yesterday, and has he changed a lot from that guy who had those fights with George Roop and Leonard Garcia back in WEC when he was taking all that that damage? Has he changed so much? I think he has, but he still brings that recklessness to all of his fights. He's just been able to get some big wins. I mean, Dustin Poirier, Dennis Bermudez, he beat Frankie Edgar, Moicano, the Dan Ige win uh, a couple months ago. I mean, he's picking up big wins when he needs to, but is he a lot different than that guy who was taking all that damage years ago? Yeah, I mean, he's improved during his time off. I think the time off actually saved in his military service, given his style of fighting, I think you rack up a lot of damage. I think it puts a lot of wear and tear on your body. And to have three or four years where you're not taking that kind of punishment and you're not putting your body through the ringer like that, because for to fight with that kind of abandon and that kind of pace, you have to train very hard physically. You have to punish your body so you can stand up that punishment in a fight. So you're burning your you're burning your body down at both ends. So he had three or four years where he didn't have to do that. Yeah, he stayed in shape. Yeah, he was active, but he wasn't preparing for fights and having to fight other fighters and spar other fighters on a regular basis. That I think that saved his body and allowed him to recover. Uh, and coming back, he's been more of a defensively. He still, he still puts pressure on you. He's still looking to punish you and hurt you, but he's been more of a defensively aware fighter. He's been more committed to his jab and looking a little bit sharper in exchanges and not just looking to make a fight chaotic and impose his will and land big shots and, and catch them in his submission, but putting pressure on somebody to back them up and to put punishment on them. Of course, there's a certain amount of punishment he knows is coming back, but he's learned to mitigate it because he comes behind a consistent jab now. His punch vari- strike variation has a little bit more um, organicness to it. It's not so rote. And he's made it a point to be a little bit more defensively responsible. So he's not taking as much shots and he's still distributing a fair amount of punishment towards his opponents. And he's still a good enough grappler where he could finish guys. So he, he's had some improvement. The thing is, um, I think at this point in his career, he's not as athletic as he used to be. So the speed and the explosiveness isn't there at that highest level. And as said before, in his return, he's taken a fair share of amount of punishment in his fights back. You know, um, that Yair Rodriguez fight was a lot of punishment taken. The uh, Brian Ortega fight was a lot of punishment taken, you know. And um, I think... He's, he's at a precipice where in the next year or two, you're going to start seeing a steep decline in his physicality and his durability. But he has improved. I mean, except for the Rodriguez fight and the Ortega fight, he's pretty much been fairly dominant in outclassing um, multiple world-class opponents and making it look easy. So he, he's shown growth as far as his poise, his ability to pressure while being defensively responsible, and his ability to um, use offense and still be defensively responsible but he still has those bad habits um, when fights get deep and like I said he's lost a step athletically uh, which means there's going to be a couple more openings for guys and that and even with him being much better defensively he's still like a half step slower and he was never the fastest guy in the first place and I think he knows he's had to be defensively more responsible because his durability has waned a little bit so you don't need much airspace to do damage to him um, or hurt him or back him up. So, and and I, I just think Volkanovski, uh, Volkanovski's physicality 
and his ability to string together combinations is going to present a big problem for a guy who, when he gets hurt, tends to resort to brawling. That's some good analysis there, sir. I want to flip over. We're not going to talk too much about the Peter Yan fight just because that fight hasn't changed other than the location. Let's talk about Mackenzie Dern and Tisha Torres. So Dern's coming off a loss. She last lost. She last fought Marina Rodriguez and lost a unanimous decision there. And she's facing another striker, someone who's different from a striking standpoint, but has the power, in my opinion, to be able to stuff a lot of Mackenzie Dern's takedowns and Tisha Torres. Torres is riding a three-fight win streak. She lost four in a row, and then she rebounded to win three, most recently defeating Angela Hill. What are your thoughts about this fight here? I feel like the winner of this will be, if it's Tisha, well, no. I feel like either one of these women could be slotted as a strawweight um, contender, maybe like next in line after Rodriguez, if she picks up a win, I think she's fighting Yao Zhang Lin next. So one of these two ladies can be behind her. But what are your thoughts about this This about here? And I feel like it's really a dangerous fight for Dern to take. Um, the thing about Torres' win streak is it, it, it she's gotten some – she. She's looked fairly dominant in these wins, but she hasn't fought she hasn't fought anybody of real note in these wins. If you if you look at her record, it's a lot of people who are outclassed and experienced. Um, outclassed. I mean, really, I think she fought on like a week's notice. Um, yeah. The the one like she smashed and they like, didn't come back out for the second round. She took that fight on like a week's notice. Yeah, I mean, but the girl she's facing, she's let me look it up real quick. Her. It's kind of like when Laura Murphy went on her win to fight uh, Valentina Shevchenko. Wins are hard to find, come by anyways. You have to beat the person. I give you all respect for that. But there's a difference between beating world-class or very tough opposition and beating people who have clear and obvious um, holes in their game that you can exploit. Brianna Van Buren, great physical specimen, big, strong, physical, very raw fighter. Doesn't know how to transition between striking and grappling isn't great defensively, offensively is very limited. Gets behind aggression and physicality. I know because I had a scouter for a pit bull, for team pit bulls. Uh, they had a fighter in a tournament in Invictifor, so I know her now. She lacked the nuance in the layers to her offense to really fight a veteran who could neutralize her physical attributes, because that's how she wins, her physical attributes. Sam Hughes. Sam Hughes on the regional cir- circuit is a physical bully who breaks people down and grinds them out. On the UFC level, she lacks the strength and physicality and athleticism. So she's facing a girl who's a better athlete, probably just as strong, and a good striker. That's a, that's a fight made to order for Tisha Torres. That girl could do nothing with her. The best win on this streak is Angela Hill. And as much as I like Angela Hill, charisma, looks, can fight, is tough. Angela Hill has shown a frustratingly difficult time beating name opposition. She, she just always seems to find a way to come up short. And while she competed a little bit better against Torres, Torres ultimately outworked her. Torres ultimately just out-hustled her. So it's like all those wins are good. Three-fight win streak sounds good, but who are you beating and how are you beating them? Mackenzie Dern is probably better than all three of the people she's beat at this stage of the game. And she presents more of a uh, physical issue because Dern is bigger. She, she actually hits very hard. She's very durable and she's very explosive. Um, the only question that's going to come down to it is, is is Dern willing to bite down and kind of walk through some walk through some fire to get to Torres? Because Torres gets by on volume and movement. 
but you can get the tours. You can break tours down. You come behind a jab. You attack the body. You can tie her up and bully her, but you have to be willing to accept the fact that you're going to have her push back. You know, you're not just going to overwhelm her physically. It's got to be something you put on a pace and a physicality, a pressure you got to put on her from the word go to the end of the fight to get to the spot you need to. Um, it's just a tough matchup because Dern is so bad with takedowns and she's not great at transitioning from striking into takedown attempts. That's probably her biggest problem. She's either going for a takedown or she's just striking. She doesn't know how to blend them together, which ends up with her getting stuck in bad positions and often countered and taken down herself. But I don't find Torres to be as good as Marina Rodriguez. I don't find her to be as dynamic or as much of a uh, balanced technician as Amanda Hebas. So while Torres could probably out-hustle, this fight is similar to the Jorge Masvidal-Colby Covington fight. Torres can take her down. Torres can out-hustle. Torres can throw a lot of volume. But the person who's capable of ending the fight, whether it's on the ground or on the feet, is going to be Mackenzie Dern. And Mackenzie Dern, honestly, every time she hits her, she should be doing some kind of damage. And I don't know that Torres at this stage can handle an opponent who she doesn't have a clear avenue to beating. She can out-hustle Dern, but she's not going to knock her out. I don't really think she can beat her up, and I'm almost absolutely sure she can't submit her. So basically, it's just going to come down to whether she can get repeated takedowns on her and control her, which I also don't think she can do. So I'm going to say Dern wins the fight. Um, Torres could win it. She could out-hustle her. I just I don't think Torres has the physicality. I don't think Torres has the power or the uh, the physical strength to do so. She'll she'll have moments. She might even win a round. I just don't unless unless Dern is not who I think she is at all. There shouldn't be a way the Taurus can physically impose her will on her from round one to round three. And I think that's what it's going to take for her to win. Interesting that you say that. I'm definitely leaning more towards Torres in that fight. I think she's going to be able to stuff uh, some of the takedown. And it's only a three-round fight, too. So I think that she'll be able to stuff enough of the takedowns to stay out of a dangerous position uh, where because Darren will be able to play her game. But um, we'll I, I feel better if she'd beaten someone who could really push back against her, but she hasn't. Sam Hughes Sam Hughes doesn't have the skill or the physicality. Brianna Van Buren has the athleticism, but she has no sort of nuance in her skill development. And Angela, as great an athlete and as durable she is, she's not the athlete that Duren is, and she doesn't hit as hard as Duren is. Like, Torres hasn't faced someone who could actually punish her or make her feel something in like almost a two-year period, she hasn't faced a comparable or better athlete than herself. And when she did, she usually got handled. Jessica Andrade, big, strong athlete. Joanna Jindrick, big, strong athlete. Wiley Zhang, big, strong athlete. Marina Rodriguez, big, strong athlete. This is I, what I'll say about that, though. I'm looking at those four names that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And three of them stand out to me as someone that, as individuals who apply amount of a pressure that I do not think Dern will be able to bring. I think Jang, Joanna, and Andraj bring an uh, bring amount bring an amount of pressure that Torres was willing to respond to. She didn't get the victory in any of those fights, but she hung in in, in some very deep, violent exchanges that I don't see Dern being able to bring and survive because she's going to need to do that if she's going to get into takedown range. I don't think that Dern will be able to do that for sustained times in order to be able to get Torres in a position where she would. If any of those three women had the same jujitsu abilities as Dern, they would have easily been able to 
open her up to a to a position where they could score a takedown. I don't think Dern can do that. Well, when you when you can hurt Dern Dern or really punish her or really we kind of dominate her positionally, like where you're just taking her down and you can like Hebas did it because Hebas could exchange with her. So then when Dern really tried to turn it on, she could just throw her down. When she brought Rodriguez, Rodriguez was just cutting her up from clinches and entries and exits and really punishing her. Tisha Torres isn't a punishing fight. Tisha Torres has never really punished anybody of any sort of real athletic ability or, t- or punished anybody of any r- real world-class level. Those fights were violent, but that was because those people kept pressuring her, kept hitting her, and Tisha Torres is tough enough to keep, and tough to keep fighting back and mobile enough to keep on moving. She wasn't really in those fights. She wasn't really close to winning them. She wasn't even really competitive to them, and she doesn't have any physical tools to turn a fight around once it starts going bad. She's going to out-hustle you and outpace you, and, and she could do that against Dern, but in, to set that pace and trying to up that volume, that's going to force her into the line of fire. And I don't, I don't think she catches as well as Marina. I don't think she's as dynamic or, or fluid as with her skill set as Amanda Hebas. Nor do I think she, at this point, she's the same kind of athlete as Amanda Hebas either. So um, while, she, while she could out hustle her, I just have a hard time seeing where she's actually going to beat her up and win. And, and to beat, beat. Mackenzie Dern, you actually not just got out class her, you actually got to beat her up. And Tisha Torres, just she's not that kind of fighter in my in my history. Maybe she's changed, but even in the fight she's won, she wasn't really beating the hell out of these girls. They just couldn't compete with her. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Interesting thoughts. Let's move on to boxing because I want to talk about this uh, rumor around Cinco de Mayo. Have you seen this where there are talks that Canelo Alvarez may be fighting Jamal Charlo on the 5th of May, which is a big um, Mexican holiday, a big night in boxing. What are your thoughts about that? Is that a something you've heard about and had a chance to think on? Uh, the thing I think about it is it's interesting because um, the, the thing that makes it interesting is that a lot of people always can, can blame Canelo for ducking people. They're like, Canelo doesn't want to fight the top contenders. He fights these easy guys. But nobody seems to understand that he's fighting guys who are, a lot of guys, Caleb Plant was undefeated. I think um, it was the guy, Billy Joe Saunders was undefeated. Even the guys he beat, one guy he beat, uh, Yildrum, who was supposed to be considered a pushover, that guy was supposed to be challenging for a belt at, at 168 anyways. And another guy he beat, who they said quit on him, that guy's had two or three other wins recently that have put him back on the world world stage as far as the caliber of fighter he's been. So people keep saying Canelo's ducking people, but he's actually fighting a very high class of fighter. But a lot of people thought he was ducking Charlo. So now by fighting Charlo, he's once again fighting another guy who's world ranked, you know, who's who's fairly accomplished, who was considered at one point one of the best people in his division. It's like he's just taking on another challenge. Um the thing, the thing that makes this fight interesting or, or I favor Canelo is two reasons. One, the same reason I always favor Canelo. One, Canelo can box at an extremely elite level. And two, Canelo can fight at an extremely high level. Most fighters, even if they can do both, they can't do both at an elite level. Canelo has shown he's outboxed the best boxers in the world. He's outfought the best fighters in the world. Secondly, Charlo is not a high-volume fighter. He'll get into heavy exchanges. He'll have moments where he throws a lot. But in generally, he's more of a careful more accurate power puncher, or he, he deems himself to be a power puncher. He doesn't throw 100 punches around. He doesn't just pressure you nonstop. He doesn't just lean all over you and put hands all over you and chase you all the ring. He doesn't do that. 
He stalks you. He tries to pressure you. And he tries to break you down with a low volume but high impact attack. If you're not going to throw a lot of volume to kind of overwhelm Canelo and you're going to kind of fight at range and fight at a pace, I don't know too many fighters who I would favor to beat him in that kind of fight. He's faced the biggest punchers and he's also faced the best boxers. So you have to be a certain caliber of fighter to fight him in that range. Now, does that mean it won't be an exciting fight? No, most Canelo fights are exciting because he likes to figure things out, see where you're strong at. He'll give up a round or two. And even even a good fighter is going to be able to give him competition around, maybe even take some rounds off him. It's just when he makes that adjustment. I've seen him adjust against the best fighters in the world. I haven't seen Charlo adjust against the best fighters in the world. He's basically done the same thing until until he's created an opening or until a guy breaks down from his physicality and his power. He's not a guy who can switch fighting styles midstream. He's not a guy I've seen who just outclasses world-class guys. He's outclassed some decent guys. He's been in pitched battles with some very good guys, but he hasn't really just outclassed and made elite guys look like nothing. And that's something Canelo's done on a regular basis. So it'll be a big fight. It'll be another fight that ultimately if Canelo wins, is going to separate him either further from his contemporaries because he's fighting undefeated or highly ranked guys in their prime. Floyd did beat a lot of guys in his prime early, but late he was fighting guys who weren't in their prime. Canelo's beating guys at the peak of their powers, and that's saying something. And he's taking on all these guys at the peak of their powers. So I'd favor Canelo because he's looking for the best guys, and all these guys are hanging on, waiting for a payday, trying to fight Canelo, which is the part of boxing that just disgusts me, to be quite honest. I mean, hey, you can't be a prize fighter if you're not fighting for the biggest prize, right? Well, they could. Charlo could. If Charlo would have fought Caleb Plant or fought somebody else, he could have had a Canelo fight. He could have forced Canelo's hand. But instead of fighting Canelo, Caleb Plant did this. He waited around, fought a bunch of third-tier fighters so he could get Canelo. Billy Joe Saunders was hanging around, fighting a bunch of third-tier fighters so he could get to Canelo. All these guys are just trying to wait it out until he's forced to fight them instead of forcing his hand by beating someone with a name and then saying, hey, I took this guy's title. You want these belts, you got to come to me. They keep trying to fight it through the public. And that's another reason why Canelo's so popular with the fans and Canelo gets so much run because he's not waiting. He's the guy who's got all the money. He could pick easier fights, but he's not picking easier fights. He's picking the most stylistic, stylistically challenged and accomplished guys he can pick. Now they become overrated and frauds after he beats them. But before then, they were undefeated champions or, or champion or guys who'd only been beaten once or twice and then beating everybody else in the weight class. So um, it, it's it's really just making Canelo, even if he loses this fight, Canelo's only going to get credit because he's done nothing but call out and face the best guys out there. Golovkin, Danny Jacobs, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. when he was still fighting, um, Billy Joe Saunders, um, Caleb Plant, now Charlo. I mean, and then before that, he fought Austin Trout and Arizlandi Laura, Floyd Mayweather. I mean, look at that resume, dude. Look at the resume of the guys he's fought. Who else right now has that kind of resume? Who else that right now is fighting three or four times a year against world-ranked or world-champion-type opponents? It's, it's not being done by anybody. Yeah, that's, that's, that's some good thoughts there. Um, do you think that this is a big fight for that 5th of May event, which is usually yeah. a huge night in boxing. The Charlos have a fan base. Canelo sells on his own, but this is another highly world-ranked, world-champion-type fighter who's had a history of knocking out most of the guys he's faced and outclassing the rest of them. So 
this is going to be one of the best fights you can make because people said Canelo's been ducking these guys for years. So there's a hardcore fans who are all going to tune in this because they believe that Charlo's been being ducked. And then all the Canelo fans are going to show in. And then anybody who's just interested in high-level combat sports, this is, once again, two top-ranked guys at the peak of their powers fighting. I mean, it's what everybody wants. It's what it, Everybody keeps saying boxing doesn't give you what you want. Canelo keeps giving you what you want. He's fighting guys at the peak of their abilities who just lost titles or haven't ever lost and are undefeated champions, and he's beating them one after the other after the other after the other. He's doing what all the combat sports fans want. Take on the best, beat the best. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's not beating the second best, the third best, the seventh ranked guy who's the most popular. He's beating guys at the top of his weight class, and this is just one more guy at the top of a weight class that he is going to be fighting and most likely beating. Good stuff there. I appreciate your insight on that. Let's uh, close out today and talk about this last topic, and that's UFC on ESPN 32 this weekend after, what, three weeks off? It seems like we are back to UFC action, and I am actually kind of looking forward. I'm looking forward to this main event. I feel like this is going to be a good card. There are a lot of lesser-known individuals across the card, but um, this main event has some value here because I believe that Jiga Chikese uh, is in line for a title shot at 145. There really isn't anyone else at this point in time when you look at how the rankings fall. Now, unfortunate thing with the with UFC and the rankings is that they don't really mean shit because nope. Henry Cejudo can say I'm coming back to fight tomorrow and he could get a title shot at any 125, 35, or 45 if he wanted, even though he's never won a fight there. But uh, Chikese is ranked number eight. He's fighting number five and Calvin Cater. So we're looking at the rankings right now. Hollow is injured. Ortega's already lost to the champion. You have Yair Rodriguez, who just lost to Holloway. Chan Sung Jung is fighting the champion. So if Jiga takes that fifth spot from Calvin Cater, I think he can put himself into title contention there. Um, Sean, what do you think about this fight from a stylistic standpoint? How do you see it going down for both men? It should be I, – I, w- I was going to hope that maybe Cater would fight someone like a Brian Ortega because him and Ortega took career-shortening beatings. And actually, this is like the second or third career-shortened beating that Cater's taken. It's the second or third career-shortening beating, beating that Ortega's faced. So I would have liked them both to face two guys coming off the same circumstance and who might have some of the same demons to overcome. Um, in this fight, he's fighting a fresher opponent who's got a better all-round skill set who's a better athlete and who actually has a depth of skills a width and a depth of skills. Calvin Cater is basically an MMA boxer. Yeah, he did some clinches and the Muay Thai, but he made his name off his punching volume, his supposed punch selection and his ability to box. But his ability to box is based on his ability to physically bully you, to handle the shots you're going at and, and to put volume on you. He's like a, uh, I don't know, a poor, like basically a poor man's version of Max Holloway, except Max Holloway actually has more attention to detail defensively and has a better sense and feel for the finer points of the boxing game. But but he no longer, he's not a great athlete, and being in wars all the time will sap you whatever athleticism you had. He's not nearly as durable as he used to be. And um, as far as his fighting style, he kind of runs out of ideas quick. When once it became clear he couldn't box with Max Holloway, he couldn't really wrestle with them. He wasn't able to take them down to grapple with them. It was just became a boxing match. He didn't have leg kicks. He didn't have body kicks. 
it, it became like a just a repeat thing. He'd come in with volume. Max would counter, counter, dance away, spin him, turn him, talk shit, slip a shot, punch him, back him up, back off him, draw him back in, and then just beat the hell out of him. He had no ideas. He runs out of ideas very quickly because his even though he has a range of skills, those skills aren't second nature. That's not what he's known for. That's not what he goes to. He resorts to his boxing, his volume, and his physicality. Now, there's a chance he could impose his will on this guy. He could impose his will. He could catch him early. He could break him down with the volume and the pacing. But the, like, as we always talk about, when your thing is volume and pacing, you put yourself in the line of fire to be countered. You put yourself in the line of fire to be kicked to the leg, kicked to the body, to be walked into check hooks, to walk into uppercuts, to walk into flying knees, to walk into all sorts of things. They can set traps for you because you're determined to push somebody back and you just walk into traps. And if a guy's got good footwork and a good range of striking skills and he's got some poise, He's just going to chop you up coming in and chop you up going out, which is most likely what happens. Um, the only thing that makes this fight difficult is we don't know what happens when he faces an opponent who he just can't scare off with the first exchange. And if he can't, and Cater, if nothing else, will keep coming. So if mentally you're weak or you gash yourself, Cater will have a chance to break you down, to wear you down, to overwhelm you. But if you can maintain that and your footwork does hold up and you can get to him early, there's a good chance. If you don't just outright stop him, you just beat the hell out of him for another five rounds. And this guy has a multitude of ways to getting to Cater. He should be able to hold his own on the feet. But when Cater gets too overly aggressive, he could go for takedowns. If he gets on top of him, Cater's never been great from the bottom. Cater's not even really a submission threat. And I know he might have those skills, but I know people, oh, I've always had them in my back pocket. That's just not true. If you had that skill in your back pocket, Cater would have used it years earlier and actually saved himself, you know, two career shortening beatings and maybe you got himself wins in those in both of those fights, but he doesn't really have that element. Not to where he can depend on it, not to where anybody's secure in backing him and oh he'll get a takedown, he can ground and pound him. Oh he'll get a takedown and submit him. Nobody thinks that's gonna happen because he hasn't shown any of the instincts or the skill sets, whether he's taking someone down or being taken down, to do that. It's gonna be a mostly strictly stand up fight from him. It's largely dependent on his ability to catch more than his ability to pitch. I don't have any faith in his ability to catch anymore. I'm not saying he can't do it anymore. I'm just saying he's taking a lot of abuse. And this is around the time guys like him start getting one-shotted and knocked out and one-shot KOs and all that kind of stuff. This is around that point. So um, while he always has a chance to overwhelm, I don't think he has the tools, whether it's physical, and I don't think he has the tools technically um, to win this fight in any sort of dominant fashion. He could come back after taking a beating, but unless unless this guy's a complete fraud, he should lose this fight, whether it's competitive or not, he should lose this fight and probably lose it in dynamic fashion. Interesting there, sir. I'm looking at um, Jacob to win as well. I'm actually working on a piece tonight about who from Georgia, the country, not the state people, will be the first um, UFC champion, and I think it'll be Jacob just because he's in a what's the word, um, right time, right place type of situation. I mean, he's a good fighter. I mean, he's a good fighter, but like you said, Ortega's gone, so that would be a good match for him. Um, the Korean Zombies could be a good match for him, but once again, he's taken. Obviously, Max Holloway isn't going to fight him, so it's like you're right. He's in a position where he's fighting basically the weakest guy in the top ten. The other one would probably be Dan Ige. No offense to these guys. They're, it's just been – it's been clearly proven. Ige's a step below Cater, and Cater is like two or three steps below the elite guys in his division, too. So 
he's he's getting perfect time and he's getting a favorable matchup. He's supposed to win this fight and do it in impressive fashion. If he loses this fight, one, he's probably gonna take some abuse, and two, he's gonna take a tumble down the rankings in the in the featherweight division. But um, this fight was made for him to win. They they want a new contender. They've already gotten what they could out of Calvin Cater. He's gotten his opportunities. If he can get an upset, that's one thing. But they're not banking on it, and the UFC clearly does not want that to happen either. Good stuff there, sir. Um, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on, man, so we can go ahead and close out in, in episode 227. Um, well, one more thing before I go. I just wanted to touch on something. Um, in the in the weeks coming, we'll, there'll be more talk about Terrence Crawford suing Bob Arum. And um, I won't get too de- in-depth on it, because maybe maybe Bob Aaron does have something against black fighters. I don't know. I don't tend to believe that. But I will say that nobody can make you into a draw. They can put you on the spots. They can put you in commercials. They can push you to the forefront. They can make you the lead of the band, lead singer. But the fans ultimately decide who is going to be the star, who they relate to, whose voice they like, whose face they like, whose personality they like. The best actor is not the biggest star in Hollywood. The best singer is not the biggest star in music. The best producer is not the best is not the highest grossing one in, in movies it's not you being the best fighter does not guarantee you will be the most popular fighter people getting attached to your gimmick or people getting attached to your natural personality and charisma is what determines if you're a star how good of a fighter justifies all the opportunities and all the money and all that that comes with it it's not the other way around terence crawford is not a draw. he's fought big important fights he's fought very tough competition People just have never attached themselves to him. Black people especially are not the biggest combat sports fans. Conor McGregor had a whole country. Oscar DeLoy had a whole country. Terrence Bud Crawford has like a state, half the state of Nebraska. That's not enough. He he has. I'm not saying he hasn't been mishandled, but he's been given very important fights. He's been a unified champion. He's fought former gold medalists. He's fought multiple world champions. He's had fights in his own hometown or home state, sold out arenas but he's never really turned the corner as far as being a crossover star. Maybe some of that is on Bob Arum, but the biggest stars of any sport, it's not because they get pushed. They get pushed because they have an angle and a story the promoters feel they can sell. If the promoters think they can make more money off you, they will gladly make more money off you. If they don't think they can make more money off you, they'll only make what they can. To me, Terrence Crawford is not a draw. He's like Andre Ward, great man, great character, Great fighter, but he wants to let his his fighting do his talking. Okay, cool, but your your fighting isn't going to get you 20 million. Your ability to excite a crowd and to draw on casuals is what gets you Mayweather money. It what gets you Pacquiao money. Is what gets you Ricky Hatton money. Those guys had connections with their fan bases that allowed them to supersede their talent. Terrence Crawford isn't the guy who wants to sell a fight. He doesn't want to trash talk. He didn't want to put on a front. And he, to me, does not have the charisma or the charm to just draw people in. Not enough for them to spend their money the way they would for a Mayweather, a Haddon, a Canelo, or even a Golovkin. So there might be some foundation, and we might go further into this. But if we look historically, he's had some pretty big fights, and he has never been any sort of real-life draw in boxing. And I'm always open for that discussion about misogyny, women not being pushed, other races not being pushed. But we got to get down to the brass tacks of it. Before me, before certain people were even really stars, before Canelo was a star, huge fan base. Before McGregor was a star, huge fan base. Terrence Crawford is a huge star. 
just people, I mean, he's a star as far as accomplishment. People just don't care about what he's accomplishing unless he fights certain guys. And if your money is dependent on you fighting other guys, if you can't make money with everybody, you're not a draw. Floyd makes money with everybody. He just makes more money with big names. McGregor makes big money with everybody. He just makes huge money with big names. Crawford doesn't even make big money by himself. He only makes big money if he gets a big name. If you're dependent on someone else to sell your pay-per-view, you're not a draw. That's the bottom line. If you can't in and of yourself generate those regardless of who you fight, you're not a draw. McGregor Cerrone still did over a million buys. Nobody does a million buys with, with fighting Donald Cerrone. Mayweather versus Berto still did over 500,000 buys. And Berto was a nobody at that point in his time as a welterweight. The reason Crawford's not selling is because he's just not a draw. And maybe they could have done a better job promoting him, but just because you're promoted well does not make you a draw. You being a draw helps you get promoted. That's how that works. Well, sir, I know we talk about that topic a lot, but you always break it down very well. So as always, man, it's great to have you just to have those types of, of conversations, man. Thank you very much. I mean, it's not popular. Trust me. I, I've i had people who know people walk up to me in real life. I've had people know, who know people confront me at gyms on there for sparring. Hey, didn't you say so-and-so was a quitter? Oh, I didn't say it like that. Well, let's see if you quit. God dang it. Should have <laughs> Write that article. <laughs> I mean, that's the game that we, we uh, play, sir. So it is what it is. Keep saying what you got to say. But we're going to go ahead and close out. We will be back here next week for episode number 228. Um, the combat sports world is picking back up. But as always, continue to do what you can to stay safe and to avoid catching COVID as much as you possibly can. Um, wear your mask, all that good stuff. Get vaccinated, please, folks, so we can get out of this situation. And we'll be back here next week, everyone. Thank you all and have a fantastic day. Have a great night. Everybody stay safe.